0: Bustin' Loose Baseball, episode 31. Danny is back from vacation. We're going to take inventory on some of the Nationals who have been added to the roster over the last few weeks. How are the new guys faring? And how are we enjoying watching and listening to Nats baseball down the stretch of a lost season? We'll get to it next, right here on Bustin' Loose Baseball.
1: This is Bustin' Loose Baseball with Grant and Danny. Yeah! Interviews, analytics, and analysis on everything baseball in the nation's capital.
0: This is Bustin' Loose Baseball. I'm Grant Paulson. Danny Ruyeh is back. Producer, Darius Damron putting everything together for us. So, Danny, why don't we just start? Vacation is in the rearview mirror. The batteries presumably are recharged.
1: Welcome back. Thank you, my friend. I, it occurred to me yesterday... Uh, this is now, we're recording this on Tuesday, August 23rd. On Monday, August 22nd, the Nationals have 39 games remaining. If they won all 39 of their games, they'd still finish under 500. One of those little milestone moments, nothing changed, nothing significant. It just kind of the math dawned on me that, you know, we were within the 40 game mark and I looked it up and did a couple calculations. And yes, they've no matter what they do, they'll have lost more than they won. Of course, no one's going to win 39 straight games, but just kind of glaring to, to see where they are and sort of the last vestiges of how great they were in 2019 and some of their you know previous stars that got us that world championship are sprinkled around the league, marquee matchups for Max Scherzer against the Yankees, and Juan Soto was uh, you know partly responsible for beating them uh, this past weekend for the Padres and the like. It's just, you know, every every so often you face kind of milestones when it comes to sports, life, et cetera, and, and I kind of had one of those when they were off on Monday. But, yeah, generally, man, relaxed, ready to hit the stretch run hard of, of them, you know, finding something – finding we talked about this before – finding some joy somewhere with this Nationals organization. And it can be prospects. It can be guys that you like coming up to the big leagues. It can be a million different things. But that, that's the challenge, I think, for all of us.
0: Yeah, I think what gets difficult is for many, many years, the Nationals were my therapy, right? They were – what I did every night for three plus hours to kind of unplug the noise of the world went away. And I just sat there if I was at home and watched Bob and, and FP or Kevin now, whoever's with him, or I, frankly, I listen to all the radio a lot. I'm, I'm a big fan of baseball on the radio mm-hmm. and I think there's a romanticism to it. And Charlie slows and Dave Jagger do an amazing job. And by the way, if you missed my interview with Charlie from last week when Danny was out, go grab that podcast. It was the last one we did. He was really, really good. If you missed, my interview with Cole Henry uh, last week when he broke the news that he was having thoracic outlet syndrome. That's also definitely worth a listen. Those were our last two podcasts in a three podcast week uh, last week. So check those interviews out. But it used to be that I would sit down and the Nats were kind of my way of unplugging at the end of the day. And it was fun because they were going to win two thirds of the time or so. And they were really good. And you always had a quality start. You know, someone was going six or seven innings. It was fun to watch. And you know, would you get the timely hit that night or not was kind of the question. And it's just not that way anymore. Now watching the games is frustrating and anxiety-inducing uh, if you're invested in that your blood is going to heat up when, when you're watching and you're seeing bad base running or you know guys that just don't hit very often. And I think what's maybe more difficult for me than anything else, Danny, not to be overly dramatic, is for a lot of the guys on the team right now, I have no attachment. I don't really care ab- about them long-term, right? I mean, most of these guys will not be here, even next year, let alone two years or three years from now when this team is good again. You know, The World Series roster is is gone. You've got Corbin and Robles, basically, two of the bigger disappointments of the season and of the last couple of years as the the last remaining vestiges of that World Series team. And otherwise, there's nobody else. I mean, Doolittle is not healthy. He's in the clubhouse from time to time. But you, you watch this team, and you're a Nationals fan. What is your attachment to Eldamaro Vargas or, you know, even guys that are fun to watch right now, like Luke Voigt or, or Joey Manessis or Cesar Hernandez is hitting 300 with 15 hits over the last 12 games. You know, These aren't guys whose jerseys you're buying, who you're excited to necessarily go to the park to see. So it's just a tough time right now.
1: Very well said. I mean, for everybody, you, you're one of the things I've come to learn about being able to being fortunate enough to, to have the job that you and I do over the course of you know more than a decade now is uh, fandom is very personal, and what I mean by that is you, you internalize it, you process it, you do it. I used to think there was a right way and a wrong way to be a fan, right? You'd read whatever sports blog about the ten fan commandments, whatever kind of things, right? It's this. This is supposed to be, as you said, your escape, your thing for enjoyment. And for me, when they were competitive for again the better part of a decade that i got anxiety not because it, it was you know it, it they they were bad but i got it, like what the an error or a bad executed pitch in the sixth inning was the end of the world you know and that juice that adrenaline because everything was competitive everything mattered nothing they do right now this minute really matters in the grand scheme of things. They're going to finish in last place in this division. I mean, the Marlins, I think, have gone more than a calendar month without scoring four runs in a game. And the Nats are pretty much mathematically eliminated from catching them. I mean, I'm being hyperbolic, but you see the point. So the stress has been removed as kind of the care and and kind of living and dying with every pitch. But I miss that. I miss that adrenaline. I miss that anxiety. I mean, and if you remember, I, I can't remember who the player was. But you showed it was Sean Kelly. It was our, our buddy Sean Kelly. You showed him like a tweet of mine from like an April game where where Danny Espinosa didn't move a runner up, you know. And I'm basically like, this is the apocalypse is upon us. There are four horsemen riding through Georgetown. Death, blight, you know, the, the Lord our God will smite us with plagues.
0: You miss that uh, anger and commitment, don't you? Yes,
1: it, Jokes Yes. I do. I miss that. I miss relevance because that's what it was. It, it, if something matters, then dude, they didn't execute. Now it's like, you know, if Joy Manessas flies out lazily to riot. It's like, okay, well, what well, time's dinner? You know, it, it's a. Everybody's trying to find their thing to hang on to at this point, point. and some folks have have kind of tuned out entirely. I understand that. Some folks have, you know, taken to checking minor league box scores and signing up for different accounts, and uh, you know, some folks have just are, are, are counting the days till they see Luis Garcia again, or you know, watching every C.J. Abrams at bat with great vigor and figuring out how many more innings you're going to see Josiah Gray. Everybody's finding their thing to hang on to, and this market hasn't really done this. This market was was robbed of baseball for the better part of, you know, not even better part, it was 30 years. Uh, plus b- b- between times where a team was here in our hometown in Washington, DC, and then when they finally came back. And a lot of people aren't used to the undulations of a major league cycle, not just within a season where teams go hot and cold. I mean, look at look at the panic going on with the New York Yankees right now. Like they're like, this is an apocalypse, and Aaron Boone is the man for the moment. Yeah, a team that was profoundly and staggeringly hot for hundred games cooled off for a little while. Bleep happens. Like it's we'll a little more than
0: that in fairness. They're like the third worst team in baseball well, yeah. since the all-stars. Yeah, League. and
1: they can't score runs. And I bet you'll end up okay. I bet you they'll be a threat in the playoffs and 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 you know, maybe do some things. They'll come out of it. But the undulations even within a season, over the course of multiple seasons. Like, this is normal. This happens, right? Teams get great. Teams get bad. Teams try to recover. And sometimes they never do. See the Phillies, who have been basically a 500 team since they won the World Series uh, more than a decade ago. Well,
0: there are some compounding factors, I think, too, in, just in terms of making it a little bit more difficult for Nats fans right now. The last two games against the Padres, you were single-handedly beat by Josh Bell and Juan Soto.
1: Yeah, there are factors that sting a little more. Literally
0: beat by those two guys, right, in that 2-1 to loss the Padres got solo home runs from Soto and from Bell. That was their entire offense. Those are the two guys who are first and second in your stat category for home runs this season. I mean, that that's just not fair. Then the next game, you lose two one again, struggling to hit, struggling to score, and Josh Bell hit a two run home run. I mean, so those three guys, those three homers rather, from those two guys over two games, you know, single handedly beat you. And that makes it harder. I think also when you look at the NL East standings right now and you see how much fun it is at the top of the division where the Braves are within three of the Mets. And even though the Phillies are 11 back and can't win the division, they have a real good chance to make the playoff. They've cooled off now, lost 6 of 10. But they are 8 games over 500. Uh, Excuse me, they're they're 12 games over 500. Uh, They've been really, really good. And all three of those teams right now are kind of beating up on each other. I was texting a buddy of mine who's on the Phillies and... You know, was just asking about the clubhouse and what it's like, and they're getting ready for their fantasy football draft. And Kyle Schwarber's making a trade for the number one pick. And I mean, can you imagine just how fun it must be to be in a clubhouse where you're playoff bound potentially, and you're yep. on fire, and it's just a bunch of big leaguers who everyone's heard of, who are good baseball players. It's what we got used to and probably took for granted for a bunch of years, honestly. Um, so it all makes it a little bit harder. But I thought we could kind of get going today by discussing how some of the newer Nationals are faring here recently. So let's start with Joey Manessis because he's by far the best story over the last two weeks, 12 games in 15 days for the Nats. Joey Manessis hitting three forty with a nine oh five OPS. Both of those stats lead the team. Uh, for his time in the big leagues now, he was called up right at the deadline, 21 hits. In 66 at-bats. So he's hitting three eighteen now in almost 70 ABs. Five home runs for him, most on the team since he got called up. A 910 OPS. The 30-year-old rookie waited for a decade for this opportunity. Just going to bed every night, wondering what had ever happened. Leaving the minor leagues to go play professionally in another country because after having a bang-up season in AAA, the aforementioned Phillies, didn't even give him a cup of coffee with an average team. And he said, what am I doing here? So he comes back. He's the best player in the minor statistically for the Nats this season. They trade everyone uh, that mattered that they could get something for. And so do Bell offensively. And it opened up an opportunity for Manessis, whose max exit velocity here this season now is in the 71st percentile. And he's done some really good things. Mostly side power. And when he sprays the ball the other way, it's mostly singles. Looking at his hit spray chart here. But... This is, for me, the best thing going right now. Non-young guy, non-like the, the yeah. players I care about long-term. Just the fun story of the season right now is Joey Manessis getting a shot at 30.
1: Yeah, I, I love stories like this. And this is the you know the occasional reminder of the romanticism of baseball. Right. I mean, they they made an entire movie about it starring Dennis Quaid, uh, the guy that was a high school baseball coach that all of a sudden threw harder than he ever had. And, you know, it's very Disney-ified, but, you know, it makes it to the major leagues. And that debut only like seven or eight people cared about for, a uh, you know, like a 41 win Tampa Bay Rays team. But just amazing. Those kinds of stories and those kinds of great things. So, A, good for Joey Manessis. It, as you said, it's one of the cool things going right now. It reminds me, honestly, of the Yadia Hernandez thing from a, from a couple seasons ago where all the guy did was hit. And he never really got a chance, and finally makes a big league roster, and now he's sort of thought of as a a big leaguer, which is really cool once that sort of perception changes, right? Instead of being a a guy that's got the shuttle back and forth between Rochester or Syracuse and your frequent flyer miles and this, that, and the other, he's a major leaguer. It's really cool. Uh, In terms of Manessa specifically, really simple swing. I see it. I get it. I get why this guy is, you know, maybe not as sexy as, as some others in terms of, you know, ridiculous power or, or or anything, you know, prodigious. And, of course, he won't keep this up for that much longer. But there's something here. There's a guy that I think can hit at this level. You mentioned pull side power, takes his base hits the other way. Teams will adjust. And, you know, it'll, of course, be up to him to to kind of continue to counter that. But there have been a lot of guys that have made a pretty decent living with that sort of formula, right? Where if you you come in uh, one too many times, so he'll cheat a little bit, open up and and hit a tank on you, but for the most part you want to live away and he'll take his base hits Oppo. It, he's been really impressive, man.
0: He has been and he's not alone in that. I like what I've seen from Ildemar Vargas as well. I was at his debut with the Nationals. I think it was maybe the day after the trade deadline and he went 4 for 4. He's got 13 hits since, so that was kind of the the heavy lifting that he did early on but he's hitting 321 with a 777 OPS uh, over 16 games. He's now supplanted Michael Franco as the third baseman basically, uh playing day in and day out for this team. And he responded. You know, he gave them more at the plate in his first couple of weeks than they were getting out of Franco, than they were getting out of uh a. Ray Adrianza who they traded obviously. And so Vargas has made the most of his opportunity as well. Maybe not as interesting a story as Manessis, but he's also a guy who's wanted this chance for a while. I mean, he's 31 years old, had been toiling in the minor leagues. You know, this year he did play with the Cubs in 10 big league games, hit about 130 before coming over to Washington. Last year he played for three different teams in the bigs. He played nine games with Chicago, seven games with the Pirates, 18 games with the Diamondbacks. The year before that, he played with three teams in the big leagues in the pandemic season: Diamondbacks, Twins, Cubs. And so he hadn't been able to find a home. You know, he's got 200 big league games, but really only once has he ever played more than 20 or 30 times in a season, mostly as a guy coming off the bench. And so this is his first legitimate chance since coming up as a young ball player in Venezuela, dreaming of being in the big leagues, to play every day. And and he, at least offensively, has made the most of it. Now, in the case of both Manessas and Vargas, but certainly Vargas, it's hard for me to get overly excited about that, Danny, because... Where does that get me? You know, it it gets me to the finish line. Maybe with something semi interesting to watch when I turn on the TV. Now, he's not here next year, and if he is, that's probably more of a problem than not. Frankly, (laughs) I would love for them to do better than Ildemar Vargas, with all due respect. And I'd say the same about Manessis. But I think there's kind of two plates we can spin here. One, which is you're just trying to get to the finish line here of this terrible season, and if there's you know a 31 or a 30 year old rookie. Uh, In Manessis' case, or there's a 31-year-old finally getting his shot who does okay. Like, that's fun. I'm a human. I I believe in this game being about people. Like, I can get excited for that a little bit. But at the same time, what really matters and what I care more about, obviously, is the young guys. So let's get into some of them. Luis Garcia begins his rehab assignment this week. We have not seen him play with C.J. Abrams because Garcia got hurt. They're going to shift him to second base. Remember, they called up Abrams when Garcia went down because of the vacancy he created at shortstop. Garcia cannot play shortstop this year if nothing else taught us that definitively. We know that his rate of committing errors and problematic plays defensively was just a disaster. And so they'll move him to second and hope he can play there. Uh, I think the jury's maybe even still out on that to be determined. But certainly got a better chance to be a long-term second baseman who can play adequately than shortstop, which is off the table. And so when he comes up after this rehab now uh, with Rochester, he's going to be pairing up the middle double play tandem with Abrams. And that's the the long term, hopefully infield tandem there with Abrams, who's 21 and Luis Garcia, who, as of the trade deadline, was the eighth youngest player in baseball still uh, and is just uh, 22 years old for the Nationals.
1: Still putting the promise there, I you know the bat to ball we know about with when it comes to Garcia, it's you know it's a matter of growing as an offensive player. I I, I never expect him to be Juan Soto or you know Albert Pujols in his prime in terms of seeing pitches and walking a ton, but you got to have some. There's got there's got to be enough where a pitcher doesn't it has to throw you a strike to get you out. And too too often he's up there and kind of making a deal where everyone's trying to keep their pitch down and he's just up there hacking and we'll kind of get this a bet over with within within a couple of pitches. He's got to see more baseballs, and I think that's coming. I don't think he'll ever be, again, a prodigious walker. You can hit your way on, certainly, but uh, it's harder than it's ever been to do that with how good pitching has become here in in the major leagues. But defensively, that is the question. I think he can play second. I think he can be... Uh, uh, you know the the ease of that throw where you can be flat-footed, you can you can get bailed out by your first baseman here and there. Um, you know, just sort of with the positional analysis that we have in terms of scouting reports and positioning guys and kind of in the right spot. There's just sort of less wear and tear, less grind, less challenge on second baseman maybe than there's ever been. I think the left side of the infield, I think it's harder to play over there than maybe it's ever been. Um, you know, where third baseman have to be sort of you know one shortstop you know, point seven five of what a shortstop has to do in terms of ranging and you gotta flip to the other side in certain shifts and the like, and shortstops have to range so darn much. So I think he'll be able to play second base at this level. I think his hands are good. And I think, you know, they can simplify things with his feet that you can't really do with shortstop because you have to generate so much there.
0: That's a really good point though, is if you're a second baseman now, all the shift stuff, which may go away here in the near future, we're gonna find that out. But for now, it's probably easier than it's ever been before because you have to cover less ground a lot of the time. And yeah, you're getting parked sometimes out in right center like yeah. a softball player. Whereas if you're on the left side of the infield, like third baseman, your job has gotten more difficult. I think so. And shortstop, you basically have to be able to play both sides and, and make a lot of throws and work a lot of angles that are kind of abnormal to the natural shortstop position. So uh, that's that's an interesting way to view it.
1: I mean, and again, n- nobody's saying this is a gold glove caliber second baseman. Robbie Alomar, he is not. I mean, the the cop that I think of for him, uh, former national Jose Vidro, You know, like, Vidro wasn't winning any range awards. Nobody's, you know, at the end of the season, no sabermetric team is being like, and the league average range factor winner is? It's certainly not going to be Vidro, but bat to ball, I think, was there, and he can sort of play the position and, uh, you know, get a couple room service, two hoppers per game, and flip at the first. Working those two guys together, though, Abrams and um, and, and Garcia, that's going to be really interesting as they kind of grow together. Getting to know your double play partner and tendencies and where you like feeds. I mean, for example... You know, do you want to, as a shortstop, do you like it on the left side as you're coming across the bag? Do you want it there so you can get your shoulders square or do you want to? You know kick out your right foot behind you and take it almost in the middle of your body or toward or towards the right side it all kind of depends and, and guys get to know each other over the the course of days and weeks and months out there uh in the field just kind of figuring out where you like it how you like it etc um, you know when you want backhand flips when you want to turn and throw uh, when you want to underhand stuff when you want to take it yourself all those kind of things and the, the rhythms of those things uh it's exciting to watch them grow together so I, I cannot wait for Garcia to come back just for those last you know 25 30 games or so of them playing together
0: He can hit and we have seen that at the major league level which i think you can put in sharpie now you don't have to worry a whole lot about the bat moving forward because he proved this year that he was big league ready offensively see you later pitching side of things here last couple of trips to the rotation much better for josiah gray over his last three starts he has a 3.12 era 17 innings and 16 hits 18 strikeouts, you know, those are about the numbers you're looking for. A punch-out per inning, a couple more Ks than hits allowed is a really good sign. Has given up four homers in those outings, but they've been one or or two-run homers, which is the key for him. You can't have those crooked-numbered home runs. Average against it, 232. So he's really after a a brutal stretch, I mean, a rough patch to his season, and that's going to happen first full-year dog days of the summer. He looks to have kind of locked it back in and, and made some strides again. Uh, the last two starts since coming back to the rotation for Patrick Corbin have been better. One against the Cubs, one against the Padres. Now, I see a lot of people are, are thrilled and, and giddy and talking about him having you know turned some corner. His ERA in those two starts is five. Okay, it's 4.8. <laughs> so everyone relax. It's six runs and 11 and a third. But it's 15 hits and 11 and a third. So only you know one plus hits per inning rather than the two that he was averaging over the last several starts. Before that, he's only got six strikeouts, not missing a lot of bats in those 11 innings, but also compared to, to previously, you could say only four walks. Whip is 1.7, average against in those two starts, 326. These are really, really troubling bad numbers, but it speaks to how awful it had been that we're all saying that he has made major improvements. I know. <laughs> At least you can like justify pitching him because they got to a point, the reason they took him out of the rotation was that they couldn't do that, and he has been better than what was rock bottom right before they removed him from the rotation. They got a good six-inning outing from Corey Abbott at one point who's been okay these last couple trips to the rotation. He's got a a four-and-a-half. Anibal Sanchez has had his best back-to-back starts here last two times through. 3.60 earn-run average for him. Ten innings and eight strikeouts and five walks. He's given up four runs. I saw this stat, by the way, while we're talking about the Nats rotation and starting pitching. I'm sure you've seen this because it's been everywhere. But in case you guys haven't, I wanted to read this because it's just the craziest thing that I've ever heard. Uh, The Nationals have gone 39 consecutive games without a starting pitcher winning a game. 39 consecutive games without a starter getting a win, and that is the longest stretch in Major League Baseball since 1901.
1: I hadn't seen that. And figuratively, it feels like I just took a Louisville slugger to the gut. I know it's bad, but anytime you find a way to quantify just to let you know how bad it is <laughs> by doing it that way, wow, that is a pretty staggering number. And they've won a few games here and there as you as you uh, you know correctly identified. That is absolutely stunning it's and nice. that's almost impossible to do Yeah. Um, to Corbin first, I did this once this year where I did a thing where my voice went up and I was like, maybe it's different. And maybe he's turned the corner. I will believe it after months. I will not do a couple start adjustments uh, or, or eye line adjustments after a couple okay starts after they gave him kind of some extra rest Again credit to him for taking the ball every fifth day and getting shelled that's probably not the most fun for a competitive athlete to just be bad but uh you know I guess that's the most positive thing you could say is that he's he's answered the bell every time uh to to jo- to Josiah Gray I've been pretty impressed. Just generally, again, the overall numbers don't blow you away. You're already in the mid fours at, at this point, but there have been enough of those flashes where, and again, I'm not breaking any ground here. This is obviously a, a highly touted prospect for good reason. Where you're kind of going, I see it. I see when it can be really good. And given he leads the league in home runs allowed at, at this point, by the way, which you know, obviously, you don't want that. But I think it's emblematic of how people don't want to fall behind against him, right? When they when they bet fastball. They get fastball, and they, got, they kind of roll pole, and they kind of open up and go. I think And hitting those solo home runs, I think, is kind of a byproduct of that. Remember when Max Scherzer had this bugaboo, right? Is anybody criticizing Max Scherzer for anything? Of course not. He's a superstar. He's incredible. You don't want to get down in the count to this guy. You don't want to be an 0-2, 1-2, even 2-2 counts against Gray because he's got some put away. So I, I sort of see that as kind of a natural byproduct of him trying to make sure he establishes strike one. There is a... There's a fine line between getting ahead of the count at all costs and making sure those are quality strikes that you, they can't tank you on. I think that's kind of the next phase of his development, of course, along with that, we'll, we'll sort of call it a third pitch, maybe even a fourth pitch in terms of that changeup, throwing it enough, having it be effective enough just to get those guys off your, your fastball and ball combo.
0: Yeah, I mean, if you look at some of the advanced numbers for him, average exit velocity is in the 70th percentile. Expected batting average is in the 81st percentile. Strikeout percentage is in the 73rd percentile. Whiff percentages in the 74th percentile. What so a lot of positive a, numbers yeah, there. Yeah, there's a lot of things to like. Fastball, velo, 65th percentile. He's got plenty of, of velocity. Hard hit percentage, 55th percentile. What I find a little bit more alarming, first of all, you got to cut down on the walks, right? Absolutely. Because he's in the 23rd percentile in walks. So automatically you're getting yourself in trouble there that's unnecessary. I think for his stuff, he doesn't get enough chases. And I don't know why that is, but they got to go back to the lab on that because he's in the 30th percentile in chase rate.
1: I'd expected more out of that. That's a surprising number to me. I
0: mean, slider, curveball are so good and Mm -hmm. get so many swings and misses that, to me, you should be able to throw those pitches out of the zone and get swings and misses. But I think that can be indicative that he's not ahead in the count enough.
1: That's. I think that's a good point. I'd also say you get you get high fastball chases based on those breaking pitches, right? You change guys' eye lines a little bit, sure. and all of a sudden they're they're watching that curveball go, to, you know, twelve to six on the clock. And next thing you know, they're the, the next one stays straight, and you've already started your swing path. You don't see that a lot from him, and that that's a surprising number.
0: Uh, I also saw on base. I'm looking at Baseball Savant right now, and this just surprises me. So they give you extension as a percentile, which I believe is kind of. It matters visually because if the pitcher looks like they're on top of you or not. Yep. And it's weird because he's got that long stride, right? I would have thought his extension, like he has the ball way out in front of him. Fourth percentile on that. So I don't know if that's something mechanically that they would look at or care about this offseason. If that might make 95 look like 97 Mm. or help you a little bit in that. How it plays, yeah. That's probably his worst overall rank among his peers Uh, he gets barreled too much fifth percentile yep so 95 pitchers out of every 100 avoid the barrel and it tells me he's missing in the fat part of the strike zone just too often probably Uh, a little bit too frequently particularly in in fastball counts so those are just a you know deep dive into some of the uh, specifics for um, Josiah Gray and I like percentiles because again it, it quantifies it for you and makes it make sense in the way of what is everyone else doing in this category rather than just giving you standalone numbers A couple of bullpen arms to talk about here during this stretch. So I'm going to go last month, basically the trade deadline on, Uh okay, Um, just as a breakdown. Erasmo Ramirez has been great. I'll put him in the Meneses category of get us to the finish line. That's fun. Mm -hmm. But based on his age and everything, he may be back here next year, may not. In the grand scheme of things, just doesn't matter a whole lot. A guy who does is Kyle Finnegan. They did not trade him. Uh, They moved him into the the late-inning role to get save opportunities. He's 5-for-6 since the deadline in save chances. He's pitched in 10 games. He's got a 1.5 ERA, a 2-0 record, 11 innings, just eight strikeouts, but also only six hits. He's got a .8 whip, which is great. He's got a 167 average against, which is really, really good. Finnegan's percentile dive this year is pretty interesting. So, you know he throws 96-97 for the most part. Uh, He's 91st percentile in, in fastball velocity. He's got great extension, 73rd percentile, which we just talked about. But some things that stand out to me. Strikeout percentage, 71st percentile. Expected batting average, 67th. Whiff percentage, 67th. All very, very good. He doesn't get a lot of chases out of the zone, 25th percentile. His walk percentage, like Josiah Gray's, is too high, mm-hmm. 39th percentile. But he get when he gets hit, he gets hit hard. His average exit velocity is in the 10th percentile. That surprises me with his stuff. Hard hit percentage, 6th percentile. Now... What we're seeing here, Danny, is that he doesn't get hit very often. And and there's plenty of swing, swing and miss, and, and there's plenty of times where there's no contact. But barrel percentage is below average. Hard hit percentile is way, way, way too low. Average exit velocity, all that stuff, not ideal. So I'm just curious how they get to a point. And again, for me, that might mean you're just missing big part of the plate, but where you lower some of those numbers. Because if you're not giving up a lot of hits, but they're extra base hits— your numbers just look way worse than they actually should be, right? Yeah. If those are singles or they're bloop shots or they're getting caught in the outfield because they're not hit very hard, very, very different than your rare time where, where someone squares you up, they hit the ball over the fence.
1: It's an oddity. And I and if I had the answer, I would just text Mike Rizzo and we'd solve it and we'd move on to the next thing. I'm sure
0: I, Mike Rizzo would love to hear
1: your take. Like, oh, hey, hey, Danny, thanks for chiming in. Yeah, I'm sure he'd love it. But – it's a, that's a really strange set of phenomenon. The, the low chase rate, again, kind of is surprising. And it's one, it's, it's, I'm doing my best to explain it here because I don't have an answer. I want you to keep that in mind as I'm giving you an answer. Again, I don't have one. I'm wondering if it's, as you said, the misses are fat misses. And I'm wondering if maybe every, let's call it third time that he's trotting out there, he doesn't have his A stuff. And I know the, the radar gun will say the same thing, but there's just a there's a flatness to it. Maybe your spin rate is reduced, or maybe there's something that we're not necessarily that gets kind of hidden in the overall numbers. So that one day where he's his 96 doesn't play like 96, it plays like 90 and he gets tattooed and it looks bad. And then the next couple of times it's kind of a okay. He's just, you know, throwing the ball by people. Really, really challenging to, to, to figure out the exact phenomenon there. But I don't know. that's that's my best case hypothesis with, with Finnegan, because there's a lot to like. As, as you kind of touched on, the the thing that's got to increase to me is that chase rate. That That's something that I think, because then all of a sudden you could start stealing strikes. You get guys that have to guess and look for certain things. That number being as low as it is, I wonder if you need more depth and bite on, on that break and pitch.
0: Yeah, it's possible. Uh, a couple other guys that stand out here so far uh, in this month post-deadline in terms of relief pitching. Uh, I have always liked Hunter Harvey's me stuff. Me too. Uh, he was a first-round pick by the Orioles back When I was really following the Orioles closely and he's been good. 13 appearances at 270 RA, 13 in the third innings, 14 strikeouts, whips barely over one. His average against is 213. A lot of things to like. He throws hard. I saw him touch 100 a couple of times at Nats Park uh, in an outing I was at. Uh, He is 97th percentile in fastball velocity. Here's what I found interesting, though. His spin rate is in the 7th percentile. And that's not new. Last year he was sixteenth percentile, but in twenty twenty he was fifteenth. And when he broke into the big leagues in twenty nineteen, he was twenty second. It seems like everyone else is, you know, trying to to improve that spin rate and he's fallen in those ratings a little bit, but it's never been a strength of his. I'd love to get him into a lab this off season if I'm the Nats to just, you know, that's that's not something you can completely change, but it is something if it's an emphasis maybe with the technology you have now. I don't know. A guy like him is probably never going to have an elite spin rate. It's just not how he throws the ball. It's not part of his game. But can you turn 7th percentile back into 20th? You know, some, Is there enough edutronic cameras and Repsoto machines? And is there some laboratory with uh, Kyle Bodie or some guy at Driveline or something where next thing you know that spin – because when you're throwing 97 percentile velocity, we're talking about 98, 99 miles an hour. In fact, his, his average velocity this year at times and outings – has been 98 plus. And for that to be the case, and you still do get hit with the fastball occasionally, you'd love to help yourself out a little bit. I don't know what the answer is. Someone smarter than me would have to figure that out, but it sure would be nice if, even if you put a one before the seven, he was 17th percentile yep. in, in spin rate.
1: Just changes the game. Again, that's another oddity. It's, I can't tell you how hard it is to throw that hard without having at least a, a league average spin rate. That is that is incredible. It just gives you the idea of the, of the body strength, arm strength, and the whip that he's able to do. I mean, that, for a lot of guys, really starts with grip. And I wonder if that's, as you said, kind of let's get in the lab and, and sort of build our pitches from scratch, right? Because, you know, when you're, when, for example, Sean Doolittle, who, who you mentioned already now, unfortunately he's been hurt this year. But when he was coming back from a number of his injuries and he was like 86, 87, 88 miles an hour, he went into the lab to try to throw harder. Right, because he's always had that really good spin rate. So his ninety plays like ninety six, and his ninety four plays like one hundred and two. We've always seen that and gets that extra carry, and it looks like the ball's hydroplaning a little bit. Right. Well, for someone that's already got the velocity, that's now pitch design, pitch creation. You know, maybe it comes off your fingertips this way, so that you're not gripping it as tight, or it's this and that. It's just again, it's fascinating that that could you could do that, throw that hard without even again an average spin rate. Like he, he gets the spin rate that. uh uh, 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 a high school sophomore is getting, you know, it, it really is incredible.
0: And it's a tiny sample, obviously, but I mean, you're averaging 97 plus on your fastball, and the slug against that pitch is 632. Now, that's only because he's given up five hits and 19 at bats, mm-hmm. and it's two triples and a homer. But I, you know, the point being, uh, that really could be a great pitch for him. It's got to be located more than anything else, but there's some things, obviously, that you could tweak as well. Long gone. All right, let's take a dive now into some of the guys at the minor league level really quickly who are of interest this week. And we got to start, as always, with Cade Cavalli, who is coming off of yet another good start at AAA Rochester. This is what he does. He just strings these outings together at this point. His season ERA is now very solid at 3.7 after a really slow start. 20 starts in this year, 97 innings, 104 strikeouts, His last start, he was not economical or efficient. He threw almost 110 pitches in five-plus innings of work. But as he threw those five innings in Rochester, two hits, one run, he struck out eight. Again, he had another start in this stretch where he wasn't giving up runs. You can go back now, 40 innings for Cade Cavalli, and his ERA is barely over one at the AAA level. And again, it's 20 starts this year. He had plenty of starts there last year. He's creeping up on 30 starts in AAA. I have to imagine, and I've been wrong incessantly on this. I've been wrong four or five predictions now this season. I'm going to try one more time. They come back home for a homestand after this little road trip that they've got, and they play two terrible teams, the Reds and the A's, I believe. Kate Cavalli will debut on this homestand. That is my prediction. This is completely speculative. I'm the same guy who has guessed that he was going to debut three or four times already this year. I'm the same guy who would have had him in the big leagues three months ago. But I would be very, very surprised if he didn't debut on this home stand.
1: I have been trying very hard, whenever I think about it, as to why he's not in the major leagues for a team that's going to lose 115 games or, or something close to that. The best I can come up with is that they are... Trying very hard to control his innings and the 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 sort of the flimsy metrics for what they're saying that he's working on or or whatever. Okay, uh, we're going to be more pitch efficient. There's no reason right now why he can't do that at the major league level, right? With with the best coaches, with the best experience, at least give him a taste. Maybe they're waiting for the first of September for the, the small roster expansion that 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 happens. I don't know. It's but it's been kind of baffling watching. Abel Sanchez, you know, get through four and a third. Paolo Espino, though, we threw well the other day, you know, trotting out there, taking the ball. Like, if you've got to go to a six-man rotation. If you've got to – whatever you've got to do, this is a puzzling thing right here where they seem to be taking their sweet time. I get that. But he's been good enough, as you said, for well over a month, two months, three months now uh, that just – and we haven't seen him in the major league level. It is a really strange situation – uh, I understand if you were in a pennant race. I understand if you, you know, closing on 100 wins and home field advantage. They're the exact opposite of that with the worst record in baseball. It's, feels like it's time to see him. And, you know, you and I have both been wrong here for the last however many weeks and months uh, that it's been time for him to come up and that he would come up. We just haven't seen it yet, and I'm, I'm kind of out of explanations.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's a debate to be had as to whether or not manipulating service time is smart to do anyway. But it's irrelevant when it comes to Cavali at this point because that's not what's happening calling him up now you don't lose a year of service time that ship has sailed now what you're seeing some of the uh blogs and and uh folks who do a good job covering the the nationals minor league system in the the nat's twitter sphere talk about is this idea that if you call him up before the end of the season and he loses his rookie of the year eligibility next year that they would miss the chance of him finishing top three in Rookie of the Year balloting next year. And remember, there's a new reward if you have a top Rookie of the Year vote getter, where if your guy is the Rookie of the Year finalist, you can get draft pick compensation now. And so the idea is you hold him down to make sure that you don't lose out on that possibility. That's also absurd to me. Number one, pitchers rarely get that kind of love if they're not winning games. And this team will not be good next year, and he won't be winning games it shouldn't work that way wins and losses are ridiculous but if if you're 7 and 14 as a rookie or you're you know 5 and 10 as a rookie which is the kind of year you have on a bad team when you're a mid or you know fourth type starter which is normally how rookies pitch you better have a 12 strikeout per 9 rate you you better be electrifying for him to be as good as he would have to be to be top three, even on a good team, is unlikely, let alone on a bad team. So I think that's so absurd and so ridiculous. It also shouldn't be a factor. It's as good an idea as I've heard because none of the ideas make sense. We're just playing Argo here. We're all trying to come up with the best of some bad ideas. But the bottom line is he's, the Nats keep saying he's not ready. And by the definition, I would say, of uh, is he going to be great every start when he gets to the big leagues? That means he's ready. Well, then, no, he's not ready. You know who else isn't ready is Anibal Sanchez, Paolo Espino. None of your starters, none of them are any good. None of them get deep into starts. You haven't had a guy win a game in in 39 games. You know, Cavalli could come out in his first outing and throw six innings a two-run ball. He might also throw a lot of pitches and walk five guys and be out in the fourth. So what? Guess what? He'll wake up the next day, and he'll go over the film with adults, and five days later, he'll be back on the hill learning. So it's time. It's been time. And I hope he gets his shot. Just comparing him to last year when he was, you know, everybody's flavor of the season and everyone fell in love with him and and he was a can't-miss guy. Uh, His ERA is very similar now. 3.3 last year, 3.7 this year uh, in fewer innings. But if you look at some of the the numbers, last year his whip was 1.2. This year it's 1.1. It's better. Last year his hits per nine were seven per nine. This year it's identical. All of that action in AAA. Last year he pitched at A-plus and at AA. So having the same hit rate is actually an improvement, better competition. His home run rate is down. His walk rate is down, so is his strikeout rate. I mean, everything other than his strikeout rate is better now in A than a year ago. It's been a very normal, thorough process. But the Nationals are more conservative at the pace with which they move their pitchers along than almost any other team. And it's long annoyed me and bothered me, but uh, this one particularly is starting to grind my gears a little bit. Selfishly, just because I I think it would be nice for Nats fans to see this guy in the big leagues, and I think it would not only not do any damage to his development, I think it would be good for him at this point to get called up.
1: So a couple things that I want to say. Um, His AAA numbers last year versus this year, night and day. I mean, his overall 2021 numbers that you touched on correctly, and, and that's where they are, his AAA numbers were, you know, were okay, and sort of leveled out, but in a full season, he's doing what he did at multiple levels where he was just, frankly, better than the level. Right. So that's one thing. They take their time sometimes. Right? Like, they do this thing where they, they took their time with Cabra Ruiz, who should have been in the big leagues last year. He was here in the minors for a couple weeks. They, the only reason they called up C.J. Abrams was Luis Garcia popped a groin, you know? And and you just sort of don't... Again, I, I kind of don't get it, but they'd have no problem throwing Evan Neal and Jackson Tetro and, and you know, a million other guys that aren't... They, well, those, they,
0: and, but those guys don't matter as much to them.
1: No, I know they don't, but they you you could throw Joanna Doan out there for, for that a, part, yeah, 15 yeah. starts. You know what I mean? It just for whatever reason for the prized guy and, and listen they, they know their guys certainly better than you and i do and it's easy for me to sit in this armchair comfortably and and, and criticize but you know you got to know the person like does somebody need to 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 dominate at a certain level and only experience success is that the way you get the most out of them does some can somebody just wear it at the big league level and and learn a lesson and bounce back you know are, are you built like mike trout are you built like i don't know whitey uh, a whiny pouty Danny Dannyrouier i mean i have no idea so maybe there's something to that, but I got to imagine from his perspective, he's kind of looking at his watch, going, "What else do I have to do here?" You know, like it, it's been time. I, every, every start down here, I'm wasting bullets on these on AAA Timmys, on you know, on, on a bunch of guys like Joey Manessis that are that are hanging on to, to being four A players. It's time for me to get outs in the show. It's just again hard for 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 me to understand, and I imagine it's probably getting to the point. It's hard for him to understand too.
0: Elijah Green, who is one of the top prospects in the system, was drafted fifth overall this summer, hit a home run in his first game, hasn't homered since. But he is now 11 for 40 at the plate. So uh, he has already accumulated about 50 plate appearances and right around 40 at-bats. The 18-year-old, in 12 games in the FCL and rookie ball, uh, has, uh, I, I said he hadn't homered yet. He, he's homered uh, a second time since that first game. But he's at two home runs, 9 RBI, hitting 300, uh, 939 OPS, what is alarming to me and will continue to be. And the reason why I am skeptical of Elijah Green is not the right word because I see why they drafted him. It's a massive ceiling, superstar potential, tools out the wazoo. It's just the type of prospect that I am leery of and nervous about when you swing and miss as much as he does in high school and strike out as much as he did. Even though IMG Academy, they're effectively playing like a, a college Type competition and schedule, but he has twenty one strikeouts and forty three at bats. Yep, twenty one strikeouts and forty three at bats. Now he is hitting three hundred. So if you want to just say, well, he's hitting three hundred and he's got two homers and four doubles and he's you know slugging five thirty five, which is massive, and he's got a nine forty OPS. Like all those numbers are upper echelon; they're great. You can ignore the strikeouts if you want to, but I, I just caution you: this is the FCL, right? I mean, this is rookie ball. I'd be curious in Fredericksburg, what does that strikeout rate look like? And, and we'll see it next year at 19 years old, obviously. But he's just going to have to make a swing adjustment to some extent to make more contact because it's it's pretty unsustainable to strike out at a massive rate and hit for average and have all the other things happen that he wants. It, it, I would think he's going to hit a lot of home runs, and he's going to draw walks. And he's done a good job at that, by the way. He's got six walks uh, in his first 40 at bats or so, and he's got six and 12 games. So you extrapolate that out over a season, what that would look like. Frankly, you know, I'm not even sure that it's worth monitoring all the numbers just yet. It's probably unfair to him because it's his first 12 games of pro ball. And it's, you know, it's silly even to talk about it as much as I am. Statistically. You're trying
1: to hit like a nine run home run to impress everybody totally. your first week. But yeah.
0: my point is just, this is, this swing's going to take some time, I think. And there, he's going to strike out a lot eventually at the big league level, but on the way as well. And you hope there's enough power and enough walks drawn that the rest of it works out.
1: Yeah, I, I listen. I, have, I haven't seen a lot, obviously. How how could I have? I wasn't watching IMG games on television, and I, why not? I, I, I can't see the Florida Coast League, um, you know, all too often. But you know, those numbers are kind of your telltale, right? Because there's plenty of good. You see the excitement. You see the the the, the pop. You see the bat to ball. Uh, when it's right, but you also see the holes in the swing, and 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 it doesn't get any easier as you kind of go up in, in certain levels. So you're right. I mean, you're, you're hoping maybe there's um, a James Wood like adjustment that's that's coming in the not too distant future. But again, you, you get him into a pro system, and uh, you know you, you sort of have to work those things. So you're right. Those that's what jumps out at you right away. I want to check back in a month, right? I want to check back at kind of a, towards the end of September and see did those strikeout numbers kind of level out as he adjusted the competition a little bit. My guess is they probably won't because it's such a small sprint sort of sample of a season, but I'll be curious to see if, if he makes the adjustment at each level.
0: Yeah. Speaking of James Wood, he had some of the same concerns at IMG Academy, which is why there are some comps, another huge guy, you know, great athlete, massive ceiling, power hitting uh, type. And he's striking out only 20% of the time this year has an identical strikeout rate to a guy who's seen as kind of a much surer offensive thing. in Robert Hassel, who's a contact, you know, with a little bit of power type, whereas James Wood, has 12 home runs and, and and couples that with 23 doubles. You know, him and Hassel this year have pretty similar power numbers actually, but the projection for James Wood ultimately is is a lot more pop. And you know, among the minor leaguers in the Nats system, if you look at their top prospects, James Wood hitting 322 this year, you know, far and away the best batting average of their regulars. Um, Jared McKenzie, who's only got twenty-five plate appearances in A-balls, is hitting three seventy-five. And Trey Lipscomb, who's been at Fredericksburg and has uh, 38 plate appearances, the 22 year old third round pick out of Tennessee, is hitting 315. But James Woods, 322 among their minor league regulars. He's the only guy over 300 this year. Uh, Royce Marquantana and, and Jeremy De La Rosa, 294, 286, respectively. Brady House, 278, and then everyone else is below that now. Uh, Robert Hassel has dipped all the way down to 277 for the season because he's really struggled since coming over. Not worried about him at all. I, I feel really, really, really good about Hassel. But in his two stops, in A-plus and in AA, uh, he is a combined 10-for-60 at the plate right now since being acquired by the Nationals, and that's without a home run uh, and just four RBI in 15 games.
1: Really struggled at the AA level, uh, too. I think he's like two for something. Uh, if if Two for 22 looking to, it to it. start yeah, in the Eastern go. League. But yeah, to to your point again, this this is all adjustments. I mean, we 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 to us we hear levels. We'll hear A ball, double AA, A, triple A. And the, those are just letters and it just sort of it's it's other, it's a way. We don't really see it. But you know, for a kid on his way up, it's a major adjustment. You know, you go from playing against guys that were of similar age to you in college, you know, I don't know if all those guys are college players, but they would you'd be playing against 20, 21, 22 year old dudes. Double A players are men those are grown-ups you know it's a, a, you know the, you, you meet your wife and kids at the ballpark and and you know you're it, then it's kind of the same thing at triple play those are grown-ups all of a sudden you know and there's violent shoves up so it's one of those things where yeah adjustments absolutely have to happen that's what this game really is all about but to but to wood listen I, i've seen the highlights like everyone else has you know when when they when that's development posts a, a couple things on twitter there's a smoothness to his swing there's a when you you know, uh, when you're away from me, I'll just sort of flick my wrists. I don't have to do, be overly complicated. Take my base hit to left, and when you try to come in pull side, I will open up and do some extensive damage. He hit an absolute tank the other night that was about 108 miles an hour off the bat. And you just you you, you drool over the possibility of what he could become if he's able to kind of make that pull side tank swing translate middle and and kind of left center the way Juan Soto has. Obviously, that's once in a generation, but get some of those things. We're not just sort of taking a little base hit, little dump it in front of the left fielder, where you're able to then drive the ball that way consistently. This could be a superstar at the major league level. One of the hardest things to learn in sports, but you could see the natural ability.
0: So I had said, remember, I said he hit his first home run in his first game talking of Elijah Green. I said he hasn't homered yet since. And then I looked at his numbers and said, oh, he has homered. He's got two homers. And I'm thinking, when the heck did I miss that? Well, they're playing right now. And he homered today.
1: Oh, on cue. So right in your eyepiece, Elijah
0: Green's second home run was. That's why I was confused. A baby. So he's actually two for three. He's got a double and a homer today. Um, with uh, So forget walk.
1: everything we said. He's good to go. <laughs>
0: exactly. Two for three with a homer, a double, and a walk. So good game for him today in the uh, FCL where the Nats are 33 and 22 this year. And he's playing in a lineup with uh, some of their other good prospects in their top 20-plus in their system. Brenner Cox, Armando Cruz, Elijah Green, Royce Marcantana, all hitting at the top of the order in the, the top four spots today. Um, pretty exciting lineup there. The only other team in action as we're taping is the uh, Dominican Summer League Nationals team, uh, where Christian vaquero is their only real prospect. Uh, he's one for three so far today, hitting two fifty-six without power. But another guy who's you know an exciting prospect who hopefully next year will be Um, stateside and and in Fredericksburg uh, helping out the Nats. So there you go, a quick dive into the minor league system for the Nationals. With that, I think we got to say goodbye for now, Danny. It is time to move along and get ready for the Nats to take on the Seattle Mariners. they got a couple of games coming up, so we hope you guys enjoy those. And we'll be back at it next week.
1: One thing of note, now again, we're finding enjoyment wherever we can with with the Nationals. If you're a, a sports road trip type person, Seattle's a sneaky good place to go watch a game. That stadium's pretty nice. The town of Seattle itself, it's got kind of everything you want. It's got cliff notes for American geography. It's got some lake. It's got some beach. It's got some mountains. Uh, usually the weather's pretty decent. You know, maybe give an occasional cloudy sprinkle rain there, but that's a good place to see a ball game.
0: With that in mind, so long from the Bustin' Loose Baseball crew. For producer Darius and Danny, I'm Grant, saying we're back at it on Thursday. Remember, every episode of Bustin' Loose Baseball is available wherever you get your podcast, Apple, iTunes, Spotify. Download us, subscribe, leave a nice comment, and we are uh, we have no shame. We'll read it on the podcast.
1: We have a very low threshold. If you're nice to us, we give you attention. It's a good transaction.
0: Thanks for listening. We'll talk with you again on Thursday on Bustin' Loose Baseball.